right, everybody. We'll go ahead and get started. Hey, welcome, everyone. And you'll need today's lesson. Rob, we're handing out over here. John, over here. Did anybody get missed? Everybody have? Starts with page six. Pages one through five are over here. So on your way out, if you missed last week, you can pick up the notes from that session. That one was not recorded. This one is going to be. That's why this is here. And going forward, they'll be recorded. So if you happen to, to miss one, you can catch it on our website. But welcome, everybody. This is going to be about 10 weeks as we go through, you see in the upper right-hand corner, Truth for Life. And I mentioned last week that this is an idea that I had had for a lot of years, but then Paul Tripp wrote a book that did what it was I was uh, hoping to do in the future. So you see the footnote down at the bottom, slightly modified from, he has blog entries on his website he did a few years ago that then became most of the substance of the book, and I have the book as well. So that's where most of this is, is from, and I'm indebted to him for that. But I wanted to do it because I am not content, as I said last week, in my pastoral calling to see people that God brings into our church simply know stuff. Even if the stuff we know is right and good, and even sometimes interesting. So people can, in that kind of setting, come week after week to just learn more. And they're stimulated by just learning some new thing. Now, the truth of the matter is, if you've walked with the Lord over uh, a period, any period of time, uh, of years, and especially if you've been in a Bible teaching church and one that tries to emphasize doctrine and theology, then over a period of time, maybe up to 10 years, you know, you'll kind of get the idea. And you will hear, perhaps in other words, some of the same themes. So then if your desire is simply, I come in order to be stimulated by new information, well, you're not necessarily getting new information. And that's, in fact, not the reason that God gave the information. So the information that we call doctrine, that we call truth contained in God's word was not given for the purpose for us to simply amass a better store of, of knowledge. And we know that as we saw at the end of last week's lesson from the most well-known verse in the Bible about the Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for, and then it gives four things for which it's useful. The first of those four, in the NIV, says teaching. It's the word for doctrine. The King James says doctrine. So it's useful for doctrine. But notice, it's useful for doctrine. It's not for the purpose of doctrine. The Bible is not for the purpose of doctrine. The doctrine is for a larger purpose. So all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching slash doctrine, rebuking slash convicting, correcting what it is we're rebuked, convicted about, and then training, the fourth thing. That's discipline, the word for discipline, so that it becomes a way of life for us. So it's those four things. It's doctrine, 
It's rebuking, it's correcting, it's training. It's useful for those four things. But those four things are for something else. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, and here's the key to words. So that. Here's the purpose. This is supposed to be the purpose for which any of us who teach God's word teach doctrine and theology. We want to get to this. So that. The man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You want to see it put into practice in your life. That's why we call it truth for life. So here I am at 60. I've been doing vocational pastoring for 30 years. And I've seen, and I've grown up in church my whole, literally my whole life. So I have seen people learn lots of stuff. And I have seen lots of people learn lots of stuff and not be changed by it. So the same kinds of problems that they had, they still have. The same kinds of sin struggles, they still, they still have. And they're, and they're not necessarily bothered by it. Now, this side of heaven, we're all going to have sin struggles. We all do. There should be progress in our lives. And certainly we should be bothered, all of us, to the extent to which we are not conformed to the image of Jesus. So there's some gap in that for all of us until glory. But we should be satisfied. But I wrote on my blog two weeks ago that sometimes we settle into this idea that, you know, there's really big things that you need to avoid in your Christian life. And if you can avoid the big stuff overall, then we've got these, as Jerry Bridges wrote his book, Respectable Sins, that we just tolerate in our own lives. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a habitually angry person. My family knows it. By the way, this is not a confession here. <laughs> 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 right, it could be, but it's not. Okay? Uh, I'm not a perpetually angry person. I'm sometimes angry sinfully, for sure. Uh, but, you know, that's the way my life is at home. But, you know, when I show up at church, I mean, I might have been yelling at my family all the way to church and in an angry mood. But when I showed up at church, man, I know what to do. I know the lingo. I know how to look the part. And I'm not being changed at that level at something that's going on in my life, in my heart, and with people that I'm closest to. And that, friends, ought not to be. If we have been walking with the Lord, if we have been coming to a church like this over a good period, period of time, that what we're being taught ought to take root and then grow, show up in the way we behave. So that's why I wanted to do this. That's why Paul Tripp wanted to do this, and that's why I'm thankful that, that he did. So last week we saw the importance of doctrine. That was the name of the, the lesson. Again, it's up here. Pick one up on the way out if you didn't get it. Today you see at the top, it's about the doctrine of creation. It's always best to start at the beginning. You guys see that that's in quotation marks. I think that's an exact quote for, um, uh, from the good witch on The Wizard of Oz. Saying to Dorothy, she's like, where do I start? Well, it's always best if you start at the beginning. Right? <laughs> so, that's my best good witch. That I can do, okay? And so she, so she did. 
So we're going to talk about the implications then of the doctrine of the doctrine of creation today. But please, uh, please hear this: that if you don't get God right, you won't get life right. If you don't get God right, you won't get life right. If you don't understand the character of God, the attributes of God, and then take those seriously as to how those now drill down into your life and your circumstances, then you will not get life right. And every time something happens to you, not if it happens, but when, living in a fallen world, it's going to happen to all of us, then you're going to be thrown for a loop because you don't have God right. And you don't understand what it is that God is doing in allowing that thing to come into your, your life. If you don't get God right, you will not get life right. Because you won't get the purpose for life right. And as we're going to see in this lesson, and as you see in the opening words of the Bible, the purpose for life is God-centered. It's centered on God. But as a fallen creature, a sinful creature, we don't come in with that default setting. We don't come into this world with the default setting that, yeah, it's all about God. Who's it all about in our default setting? Of course, right? And so it takes, it takes spiritual life. It takes a change, an internal change. And an internal change that now desires, resonates with the truth that God gives us in his word. You get that, you've got something. I've got spiritual life, I'm getting God's word, and I'm making effort to apply that to my circumstances. And so... If you don't get God right, you don't get life right because the purpose of life is, we're going to see, God-centered. It's centered on God, which then affects your perspective on things. The things that happen to you. The things that go on to your, in your life. Your perspective on those things will be determined by whether you see your purpose as God-centered or me-centered. How is, if you're, if you're God-centered, you will be asking the question, when that difficult thing comes up, you will be asking the question, how is God using this for his glory, and how is he using me for his glory in this? If you're God-centered. If you're centered on God, your question will be, how is, notice the next word, God Using this for, notice, his glory. And then, how is he using me in this situation to achieve that? His glory. That's a God-centered perspective on all that happens. So you have the capacity, as a regenerated Believer, regenerated meaning you have spiritual life. And so the truth of God resonates within you. you. Therefore, you have the capacity to do what the Apostle Paul did in his attitude. His attitude in Philippians chapter 4. You all remember Philippians chapter 4. It's not in your notes. So, scribble it down. Or not. All right, Philippians 4. 
is the reference. And you remember Philippians 4, 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again. Rejoice. Verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything. Well, how am I going to... Here's Paul saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. When he writes that, he's chained to a Roman guard. Rejoice. Be joyful in the Lord always. And I will say it again. Rejoice. And do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, later in that chapter, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether full or hungry, whether in plenty or in want. And it's in that context that he says in verse 13, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. We divorce that verse from that previous context, don't we? When we say, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength, here's what we usually mean. I can count on God to help me soldier through what I'm doing, what I plan to do, my agenda. I can do it because he strengthens me to do it. But here's Paul going, no, I'm I'm actually following somebody else's agenda. Namely God's. And the reason that I can be joyful is because I know that in everything that happens, including being chained to a Roman guard, God is active. God's at work. And God's at work glorifying himself and using me in that process. Therefore, whatever the circumstances, I can be content. Wow, what a great way to live. Am I right? Is that a great way to live? And the Bible calls Christian people to live that way. But you only live that way if you're God-centered rather than, rather than me-centered. How do you get that? Bottom of page six. You go back to the beginning. So Tripp tells this story about how, you know, as a younger Christian, he wanted to make sure that his faith was credible, that he fully understood it. And he was talking to his older brother, Ted, Ted Tripp, who's also written some books that are in our resource center. And uh, Ted tells him, go back to the beginning. Go back to basics. And so he says here, back to the beginning, with this zeal for knowing what was true and what was false, I accepted the challenge of my older brother, go back to the beginning. If I wanted to understand what's true in the catalog of ideas that makes up the conversation of humanity, I knew I had to go back to the point where what is was being formed into what it, what it became. That is what we see, and it's a very beginning. That summer, I got my Bible, began to read and study the book of Genesis. And with a marker in my hand, I studied the first three chapters of the Bible. My life changed that summer. More accurately, the Word of God changed my life that summer. 
I was a changed man, convinced that there are few more practical things to do as you seek to live God's way in this fallen world than to regularly go back to the beginning. You see, in that womb where all things were being formed, you find things of profound importance. In that womb of the first three chapters of Genesis, God says revelatory things about himself, the world he created, and about the people that he's, he's placed in it. So this lesson goes back to the beginning. Now, in that second paragraph where he says, in the womb of all of that in those first three chapters, God says revelatory things about himself, about the world he created, the people he's placed in it. Many of you have taken our one of our two foundational classes that we urge everybody to take. One of them is Master Plan for Life, the systematic theology for regular people. And the other one is how to get the most out of your Bible. And how to get the most out of your Bible is we do a survey of the Bible. I start out by saying that the Bible's really about three big things. Three. And you find them all in the first three chapters of the Bible, the first three chapters of Genesis. The Bible is about creation. That is who God is and what he expects from us. That's what you see right at the beginning, creation. This is God giving an orientation to his world and the people that he made. So, I'm God, you're not, Adam. This is why I've placed you here. So, it starts, it's creation, it's an orientation to God's world. The Bible is about, first of all, creation. We're going to talk about that today. But it's also about, the second thing, the fall. Who we are and what our problem is. And that is... That orientation that God gave, where you see for a minute <laughs> it lasts, and then it goes south pretty quickly. But during that brief period where there is no sin, the orientation and what people were supposed to do in relation to God is working out beautifully. Adam and Eve have a relationship with each other that's beautiful. They each have a relationship with God that's beautiful. And they're all pursuing the instructions and the orientation that God, that God gave. But then sin intrudes, the fall, and you have the second thing that the Bible's about. It's about creation, the fall, or not orientation, but disorientation. And nothing's right, and everything's distorted. And the relationship between Adam and Eve is no good anymore. And the relationship between humanity and God is no good anymore. And if we're left there in those opening chapters of the story of the Bible, we're in a world of hurt. Thankfully, there's a third thing it's about. And God tells us about it in the third chapter. It's about redemption. And so it's, it's about redemption. And he tells us about it in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3. I, God, am going to put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. He... The seed of the woman is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. There's going to be a solution now to this problem of sin that's going to be a part of the human race. And of course, as you go forward in the Bible, you see the predictions of the Messiah, ultimately Jesus, and all of that. But it's the seed of that is in Genesis 3.15. So right there in those first three chapters, like Tripp says, in the womb there of these first three chapters, God says revelatory things about himself, about the world he created, and the people he placed in it. It's about creation, 
orientation, the fall disorientation, redemption, reorientation. God's reorienting his world. Now, you are part of that reorientation project. Your salvation is part of God reorienting you and me to the way it was originally supposed to be. And we're supposed to be used of him to call more people into that through evangelism. But you're in the process of being reoriented. You came into the world disoriented. And now you're being reoriented. And forgive the grammar, but if there ain't no reorientation happening, then the purpose for which God has given you that new life is not occurring. And I'll just say this. I don't mean to be mean. I don't mean to be scary with this. Okay, I don't. If what I just said to you is somewhat convicting, that's a good thing. Okay? Because if it's not, we, we may not have that spiritual life. If what I'm saying here about God reorienting us doesn't resonate with us, there's a problem. So I trust it does. And if it doesn't, I would love to talk to you about your relationship with the Lord, really. Okay? Creation, who God is, what he expects from us. The fall, disorientation, who we are, what our problem is. Redemption, what God is doing about it. So the first, the four most important words, third of the way down, page seven. I don't know about you, he says, I like words, I like to read and see how authors employ them. Assembling them to make a point. That's emotional, dramatic, intellectual, or humorous. I also like to listen to people. I listen to and hear how they grab words out of that seemingly endless catalog of the human vocabulary, utilize them in a conversation. God was careful and intentional with the words he chose for his word. He wanted to make sure that his words carried the freight of his message. And that's why I absolutely love the first four words of his book, In the Beginning, God. In the Beginning, God. Now, if you're to ask people in your church what the first, the four most important words in the Bible were, I'm sure you'd get a variety of responses. I am the way, thou shalt not kill. Those are four-word phrases with deep significance, but I'm persuaded that the first four words of the Bible are the most important because they lay the foundation for everything else that the Bible's about. Think about what the Bible's about. God. It's the story of his design, a perfect world with amazing, tangible glory. It's the story of his people, a race of creation that rebelled and destroyed everything good. It's the story of his redemption, a plan to rescue, repair, reconcile, restore. If the story's about God, it only makes sense that he dominates the first four words of the book. Before anything, God was. In the beginning, God. Before anything, God was. Have you ever thought about that before the beginning there was nothing and no one except God so the Bible teaches in Genesis 1 and 2 I'm convinced that God created the universe in six days and when I say the universe I mean everything God created everything in six days. But 
sometimes I think we don't think about the fact that when we say, like, absolutely everything in those six days, we mean everything. There was nothing and no one besides God prior to the beginning. And here's why I say I think we sometimes don't think about it. Friday, I was at an ordination council. I love ordination councils because I get to see fellow pastors. I love them mostly because I get to grill somebody <laughs> who's looking to be ordained and put them through what I had to go through. <laughs> Return the favor. But anyway, so you assemble these pastors and the guy's got his doctrinal statement and we go through ten doctrines, one at a time, and we question him about what he said. And one of the things he said was he believed in creation in six days. And I said, hey, have you ever, and then there's a section on angels, too. When we got the section on angels, I said, hey, you believe in creation in six days. Have you ever given any thought to when the angels were created? So I'm asking you, for your ordination, have you ever thought? about <laughs> when the angels were created? And I think many people assume the angels were around before in the beginning. Like, at the beginning, it doesn't really mean the beginning of everything. There were some angels hanging around. But it's my understanding the way Genesis 1 is written that the angels were created during that creation week as well. Now, it doesn't call them out in Genesis 1, I grant. And Job chapter 38 and verse 7, Job 38, 7 says, the morning stars sang together as they witnessed creation. So they were there watching what God was doing. But in the beginning is an absolute beginning. I'll tell you why I'm convinced of that. And so what that means, if the angels were there watching, is they were created like first thing, day one. Early on day one, God created the angels. And the angels got a front row seat to see everything else that, that happened. And prior to the beginning, there wasn't nothing. Now, if you, don't, if you don't believe that, we're good. But I'm just telling you that's what I believe the Bible teaches. And the reason I want to belabor that a bit is I want you to see what Tripp is going to emphasize here in a, in a moment. I'll just add one other piece of data to that whole idea that the beginning is an absolute beginning. Do you all remember someplace else in the Bible where in the beginning is used? John 1. And when, and when John says in the beginning, immediately the person who reads that, their mind's supposed to go back to Genesis. And Remember the point that John is proving in John chapter 1? He's, he's proving that Jesus is God. And one of the ways he's proving that Jesus is God is that Jesus was not created. He created everything. So his argument loses. I mean, it's not defeated, but it does lose some punch if there's already created stuff. I think his point is, in the beginning, there was only God including Jesus, who is God. And by him, all things were made. And apart from him was not anything made that has been made. That's the kind of tortured language he uses to just make sure we get the point. All right, so bottom of page 7 then. The first four words of the Bible put God not only as the origin of all things, but at the center of all things. I need to write that out again for you. I want to encourage you to jot it down. He says somewhere. Well, here it is. The first four words of the Bible put God not only as the origin, but as the center of all things. 
If God was on site before anything was, he deserves to take credit for everything that is. If God was the creator of all that exists, by default, he has the right to define what is good, right, and true. If God was the first and only source of life, then all meaning, purpose, and identity is only going to be found through him. Permit me a moment to celebrate, he says. Before the world was formed, God was. Before the sun, moon, and stars lit up the sky, God was. Before the first flower bloomed, God was. Before the first fruit grew on a tree, God was. Before the first wing of an eagle flapped, God was. Before the first muscle of a gazelle leapt, God was. Before the first gill of a fish opened, God was. Before the first golden sunset, first drenching monsoon, first crash of thunder, first gust of wind, first fall of snow, God was. Before Adam experienced breath in his lungs, before he experienced grass beneath his feet, before he experienced light in his eyes, before he experienced taste on his tongue, before he experienced sound in his ears, before Adam ever laid eyes on the beauty of his wife Eve, before they walked, talked, laughed, hugged, kissed, loved, God was. Before the first family, the first house, first village or government, before the first anything, God was. If God was, then everything he declares is as he says. That means the universe and everything, and it must be seen and understood in a certain way, and that way is God's way. So, if that's true, and it is, if that's true, then this, what I'm going to say in a minute, for your life and my life is not true. If that stuff's true, and it is, then this is not true. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Sounds right, except you don't need the middle piece. You see, if God defines everything and what is true and right and beautiful, and it all starts with him, whether we believe that or not, it is. It's not God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It's God said it, that settles it. Whether I believe it or not, or friends, whether I want to believe it or not. Because this is going to happen to you if it hasn't already in your life. This is going to happen to you. You intellectually acknowledge that God defines what is real. God defines what is true. God defines what is right. You intellectually acknowledge that. But you come upon something in your life that you don't like. And the question is going to be now who wins? <coughs> Do I really believe that? God said it, that in fact settles it, and it would be great if you and, and I, all of us, would settle in our own hearts right now that if God said it, that's it. There's no argument. It may be hard for me. I may not see how I'm going to make it in light of what God says. I don't know how I'm going to remain in this marriage. That's difficult. But God says you got... You know, two options for getting out of a marriage, adultery and abandonment. And if neither of those are, have happened, you're not being abused. 
You just wish you had married somebody else. But God said it. That settles it. Let's now live it. And let's do it together. And seek help. And seek support. And prayer. And counsel. From your brothers and sisters. Top of page 9. So there are three dangerous lies then. By now, you're probably thinking, okay, you made your point. <laughs> so here's what it means for us. One is, here's one of the three lies that if you don't get this right, we're susceptible to. The first is the lie of autonomy. Autonomy seduces. Autonomy means, literally it means self-law, self-rule. So namas is... The Greek word for uh, law or rule, auto, auto is self, so self-law, self-rule, autonomy. Autonomy seduces us into thinking we're independent creatures with the right to do whatever we want with the life that belongs to us. Just listen to some of the most popular songs in our culture. He's got I Did It My Way by Frank Sinatra, but he's got It's My Life by Bon Jovi. Now, I am, I am the most... The least culturally aware person, in probably uh, in Southeast Michigan, anyway. So, did ba did Bon Jovi have a song called "It's My Life"? He does. Okay, because I know, well, I know Billy Joel had. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. So I just thought that was he just got it, got him wrong. But Bon Jovi apparently okay. I could have looked that up, but I knew you guys would know. <laughs> So there's this joke at our church that if it wasn't on C-SPAN, I don't know. <laughs> so get this. We've been joking about that for years. If it wasn't on C-SPAN. So people ask me if I've seen a movie. I go, was it on C-SPAN? <laughs> and so this really happened last, uh, last Sunday. During the sermon last Sunday, I said, I don't know how many Swifties we have. <laughs> and I'm at lunch with the Castle family, and Claire says to me, hey, how do you know the term Swifty. And I go, you know, I don't really know. And then immediately, Larry, Pastor Larry goes, he must have heard it on C-SPAN. <laughs> Did you guys hear about the hearings that they're having yeah. in Congress? Yeah. That's where I heard it, on C-SPAN. <laughs> he reminded me, I go, that is where I heard the term Swifty. So C-SPAN comes in handy every now and then. Cultural benefit. By the way, the Billy Joel uh, version has this line that says, they'll tell you you can't sleep alone in a strange place, then they'll tell you you can't sleep with somebody else. But sooner or later, you sleep in your own space. Either way, it's okay, you wake up with yourself. That's stuck with me over the years. Pearls of wisdom from, from Billy Joel. And I would just challenge you to, to go look that up Ponder it, and I'm hoping you'll come to the same conclusion I did. That's really stupid. Actually. All right, back to middle of the page. So it's my life, I did it my way, but listen to the song of Genesis 1-1, In the Beginning God, that song is played to a radically different melody. If God was first, our lives have never belonged to us. You and I don't have the right to think, desire, act, and speak as if it does. So, brothers and sisters, friends, God by right of creation, owns us. When 
as we had today, we had some folks join our church. They fill out our membership application. On the membership application, one of the questions is, who do you believe Jesus is? I make most people put on there, uh, he's the son of God, which is a good right answer. I make sure that they understand that when we say son of God, we mean God the son. He's God. And he made you. And he makes the rules. And there's a question down at the bottom of the page that says, does Jesus have the right to full authority over your life? And the answer has to be yes. And the reason it's yes is because he's the creator. He made you. But secondly, he has ownership of you and me by right of creation and by right of redemption. Do you remember that 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, says, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. You belong to him because of the price of redemption paid by Jesus on your behalf. He owns you because he made you. He owns you because he bought you with the blood of Jesus. And so what he says goes. So there's the lie of autonomy. There's the lie of relativity. It means that in the catalog of ideas, the human community constantly generates. There's no such thing as absolute truth to each his own. You do you. Next paragraph, the philosophy of Genesis 1-1 would vehemently disagree. If God was here in the beginning, if everything in the universe belongs to him, then what he says is true. Whatever disagrees with him is by its fundamental organic nature false. The doctrine of creation draws the line clearly in the sand. There's truth, falsehood, and no open catalog of equally valid ideas. Now, in the Christian life that you and I are, you know, we're all pursuing, and we look at God's word together and we see what it says, and then... We attempt to make application of it to our lives. It may, it not only may be, it will be the case. That God will call you to a different situation than me. That there will be different applications of those made by you than me. And that is all good. Romans 14. Romans 14 talks about maintaining unity in the midst of the diversity of, of Scripture. So... We are not, God never made us to be cookie-cutter Christians. We're different personalities. We have different callings within the purpose and the mission that God has, has given us. So we don't have to have all of the same applications in Christ. But hear me. We do have to ask all of the same questions from his book. You can't say, none of us can say, that I haven't consulted the book when I go and make whatever the decision is. I've had many a person in our church over the years who's made a decision I disagree with. And if they've come to me for counsel, I tell them. But if they have done a search of what God says and they have determined that this is the right thing for them to do, then we can just agree to disagree. I mean, unless they're doing something obviously sinful or, you know, doctrinally aberrant. But the point here is that all of us have the requirement to go to the book to get the truth regarding whatever it is we're contemplating, whatever it is we're doing. And then the last lie is self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency deludes us into thinking that we have everything within ourselves to pursue 
whatever it is that autonomy has granted us license to pursue and by whomever relatively says we can. Self-sufficiency rejects the assistance of others, relies solely on self for existence, prosperity, and well-being. Now let me elaborate on that a little bit. Because you read that and you go, I mean, are there really Christians who do that? Like that? And so you can easily dismiss it as not describing you. But add this to it. Think about it this way. That, you know, what most of us would do is we would not, especially as professing Christians, we would not pursue life in a way that says, I've got within myself all that's necessary to do everything in my life. I've never heard a Christian say that. I doubt I ever will. Okay? So that can sound like it just doesn't apply to you. But here's how it applies. We need help. We know we need help. But what we do is we create the agenda and we pursue our agenda. Notice whose agenda? Our agenda. And then if something goes wrong with, again, our agenda, we know who to call. Call Jesus. Call God. And we certainly would. Call on God to help us with whose agenda? You see, we're, we're, one of the areas where we are most self-centered is in establishing our life agenda. What is my life's agenda? Uh, I just make a list of stuff I like to do. What do I like to do? That's my agenda. Now, I grew up in church, and I think it's a good thing. And so I'll, bring, I'll come to church. I'll bring my kids to church. But in terms of my life's agenda, it really doesn't look any different than my next-door neighbor who's a good moral guy who's pursuing his own thing. Just stuff he likes to do. It's not illegal. It's fun. I can afford it. I go and do it. I'm doing my thing. But if something, if there's a mishap, believe me, oh, pastor, I pray. Lord, bless this trip. Lord, bless this thing that I'm doing. But it's all my agenda. And it is why over and over and over again, got 21 years worth now here, over and over and over we're telling you, listen, God has given us an agenda together, a purpose and a mission to carry out. And he sets that agenda and we structure our lives around what he has told us to do. So look at page 10 then. Make it real. Let's apply this to our lives. Reflect on how you may be daily seduced by these. Autonomy. How does your heart tend to respond when you are required to submit to the authority of someone else? All right, take that in, okay? In what ways did you forget about the presence and plan of God this week? Existing as if you were autonomous. Relativity, how does your heart tend to respond when someone criticizes or argues with your actions or views? In what ways did you compromise or minimize the truth of God's word this week, living with some form of relativism? How does your heart tend to respond when you can't accomplish something on your own? Or reflect on how your day-to-day existence is dependent on both God and other people. How can admitting weakness be a strength? And I would add the third thing that I just gave you. Okay, whose agenda are we 
are we pursuing? Don't be afraid to examine your life in the exposing light of the doctrine of creation. God is all about himself, but he's not only the glorious creator of everything that is, he's the gracious savior of the human race. He died to forgive us when we pursue autonomous, relative, or self-sufficient lives, rose again to free us from our bondage to self. How sweet it is to consider that the creator will give us the grace we need to live as he's designed in the beginning, even though the world has gone terribly wrong. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the blessings of this day, the Lord's day, of being with your people, of being able to encourage and be encouraged. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word to instruct us. Thank you that we could blend our voices together and raise them in praise to you. Lord, we uh, pray, we desire that you are pleased with all that we've done. And, And then in this hour, to think about you and the fact that you are at the center of your universe and everything that is done in it. And so help us, Lord, each of us, to align our lives accordingly. If we get you right, we get life right. And so help us to do that. Help us to ponder that this afternoon and and this week and, and make whatever adjustments we need to make to align our agenda with your agenda, Lord. We ask you to go with us this week and to grant us safety. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.